As I think many of you know, this week begins school for many students in our area. And as I was reminded last night at church, actually, for some high schools, at least Concordia Lutheran High School, began last week. Well, we know um, that for our school here, Emmanuel St. Michael Lutheran School, it begins this week on Wednesday. And so with that in mind, I'd like for all of us to imagine for a moment, imagine for a moment that you're going back to school, okay? And also, I'd like for you to imagine this morning that as you go back to school, you are able to take a class, take classes only in the things that you like. So whatever subject you like, that's all you have to go to school for. How does that sound? So let's get a little congregational participation this morning. And I'm listing a number of subjects here. Let's just find out what it is you like. So raise your hand if you like math. Well, three or four of you. Oh, maybe a few more. Okay, all right. Science. All right, we got a few scientists in the, in the room. English or literature? We've got some people who like to read. Yes, you can raise your hand on more than one. You will not be penalized. Music? Yes, Stephanie, okay. Okay, take names, keep your hands up. Take names, all right? I'm helping you out here. Recess? Yeah, okay, we like recess. Uh, religion? Yeah, okay, we all know be raising our hand on that one, yeah. Uh, art, how about art? Yeah, we got some artists in the room. P.E., gym, class, yeah, okay, some of us wanted to major in that. Uh, study hall, well, who doesn't like study hall? I mean, you just hang out and not study. How would you like to go to school and just take the classes you like? I'm sure any educator here would realize that that's probably not the best idea. And I suspect that most of us realize that we all probably need a broader educational experience than that. Well, let's compare that idea to that of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you confess faith in Jesus, you are saved, and you are a disciple, a follower of Jesus. But I believe that the testimony of the New Testament tells us that being a follower of Jesus Christ means a lot of other things. You are a follower, you are a disciple by confessing your faith in Jesus. But as a disciple, you live out your life of faith in a number of ways. For instance, by worshiping, by praying regularly to the God who saves us, by studying and reading and meditating on God's Word by serving the needs of others, by sharing our resources, by sharing our faith. These are not 
totally comprehensive, but they are some of the ways that we live out our life of faith as a disciple of Jesus. Just like the analogy of being a student, being a disciple impacts a number of things in our life. And it's with that in mind that we come to a part of our New Testament reading this week where we will read 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And specifically in those two chapters, the Apostle Paul talks about the discipleship of generosity. And I think when it comes to the discipleship of generosity, there's probably no better place in the New Testament to describe this than in these chapters. And as we look at that, let's start by looking at an example of generosity. One of the things that the Apostle Paul is trying to address in his writing to the Corinthians Christians is the opportunity to help out the churches in Jerusalem who are having some financial difficulties. Now the church in Corinth is located in the southern part of Greece, an area referred to as Achaia. The northern part of Greece is an area referred to as Macedonia, and that includes cities like Berea and Thessalonica and Philippi. Apparently, before writing to the Corinthians, Paul had visited the churches in Macedonia. And as he approached the Corinthians to ask them for help to share in this giving towards the Christians in Jerusalem, he uses the Macedonians as an example in their giving. And I want you to notice some things that Paul says to them. He says, in the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now I want you to think about what Paul is saying here. Apparently, the Macedonian Christians, the churches there, had their own financial challenges that they were dealing with. And we know that because Paul uses the phrases here, severe trial and extreme poverty. Well, if that is their situation, how would you expect them to respond to an invitation to help other people. We probably would expect them to respond by saying something like, well, this isn't a good time. Maybe ask at another time. But their response is exactly the opposite. In fact, Paul describes it this way. They gave beyond their ability. They urgently pleaded with us to participate in this giving. They exceeded our expectations, and they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. Who does that? Who raises their hand and asks to help others who are in need when they themselves are experiencing times of difficulty? Well, that's the example of the Macedonian churches that Paul is sharing with those in Corinth. And I think the point Paul is making here has absolutely nothing to do with the amount that they gave, 
We don't even know the amount they gave. But it has everything to do with the attitude with which they gave it. Paul's example of their generosity has to do with attitude, their overflowing joy, their rich generosity, the privilege of participating, their eager willingness. It's all about attitude. And as far as attitude is concerned, Paul writes something else in chapter 9 about that. You're familiar with this verse. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. You've heard the phrase before, but God loves a cheerful giver about attitude. Do you realize that in the Greek language, the word that's translated cheerful can also be translated hilarious? God loves a hilarious giver. What does that look like? A friend of mine told me one day that he and his wife were at a grocery store and they were there just to buy a couple of small items. And they were in a checkout line behind a woman who had five small children and a, and a heaping shopping cart. My friend said, just kind of observing them for a little bit kind of made you feel like maybe she has some limited resources. As the checkout person finished scanning all the items, it came to around $200. My friend said he looked at his wife and she nodded in agreement. And so he pulled out his wallet and started to pay for her what she was buying. She tried to keep him from doing it. He persisted. He wanted to do that. And he made the purchase. She thanked him repeatedly, hugged him, and headed out the store with tears in her eyes. My friend said he and his wife made the couple purchases that they came in to, to make. And the thing that, he, that stood out for me as he told me this story is that as they were walking to their car, my friend turned to his wife and said, that was fun. Who does that? Somebody who is a hilarious giver. It's nothing to do with the amount. It's all about attitude. As Paul addresses the Christians in Corinth about participating to financially help the Christians in Jerusalem, he give, begins by using the Macedonians as an example of generosity. But then Paul moves from the example of generosity and he talks about the encouragement towards generosity as he talks specifically to the Corinthians here. And as he does, here's what he says to them. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. In other words, it's only natural that when we try to do something, we want to excel, we want to do our best, we want to exceed beyond what other people are doing. For instance, if you play a sport, there are probably very few people who attempt to play the sport and say, you know what, I just want to be mediocre. I mean, who does that? Nobody attempts to do that that way. Probably nobody attempts to join a team and says, you know what, I want to be the last person in the game. Nobody says, I want to spend my, my time on this team sitting on the, on the bench. Or on the sidelines. Nobody says that. 
You join the team, you participate in the effort because you want to excel in that. Now we realize that not everybody can be first in everything that you do, but that doesn't mean that we don't work towards that. When it comes to the Corinthians helping with the churches in Jerusalem that needed some help, Paul's encouragement is that this is something that they excel in. If you're going to excel in faith, if you're going to excel in speech, if you're going to excel in your knowledge, well, also excel in this grace of giving, this gift of giving. In other words, Paul is encouraging a discipleship of generosity for the Corinthians. And as he does that, here's something else that Paul encourages them to keep in mind. For if the willingness is there... The gift is acceptable according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. Paul realizes that not everybody's situation is the same, and it's never about comparing one person to another. It's all about responding from what we have, not from what we don't have. And having said that, I think it's worth us remembering as disciples what it means to be a steward. The steward is not a word that we, we use in our common language, but a steward is somebody that is a caretaker or a manager of what, be what belongs to somebody else. A steward is not the owner, but a steward is the person that manages or takes care of what the owner owns. And from a biblical perspective, you and I are stewards because God owns everything. It's why we said in the opening of our worship that the Lord owns cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. And since he, everything belongs to him, then, then we are stewards, we're managers, we're, we're caretakers of what he's entrusted to us. And in our management of what God has entrusted to us, it's only natural for us to return something as an expression of thanksgiving. Paul's encouragement to the Corinthians was that they exhibit a discipleship of generosity in how they manage what God has given to them. But now having been given an example of generosity and having heard about an encouragement towards generosity, then perhaps the natural question for the Corinthians or for us to ask is, why? What would be our motivation to do what Paul is asking? And Paul answers that question with an expression of generosity that he gives to us here in this reading. Paul says, and if you remember no other verse from this chapter, remember this one. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Think about that. Before Jesus ever appeared on, in human form on earth, he was, he was rich. How? Because he was there when the heavens and the earth were created. Jesus was seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Before ever coming to earth in human form, Jesus was living in the mansions of heaven. He was rich. It's why we say these words when we speak the words of the Nicene Creed and say these with the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, very God of very God, light of light, I got him all messed up, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, Jesus was rich before he ever came to heaven. That's, that's who he was. But when he came to earth, he became poor, which is what we speak about when we say these words in the Apostles' Creed together. 